The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Hey, warm welcome to this uh, Tuesday edition of Squawk Box. Uh, Karen Cho, Jeff Cutmore will join us later on and myself, Steve Sidgwick. These are your headlines. A Twitter triumph for Elon Musk. The social media group's board approves his $44 billion bid to take Twitter private, sparking a flurry of speculation over what the future of the platform may hold. Asian equity markets staging a rebound as the PBOC pledges more economic support after Chinese equities post their worst day since February 2020. HSBC beats expectations despite posting a near 30% fall in first quarter profit as COVID and inflation weigh on revenues at Europe's largest lender. CFO Ewan Stevenson tells CNBC rate normalisation is a bright spot. We are expecting the Fed to raise rates by 50 basis points. Um, uh, so overall, I think you know interest rate rises is going to be a big theme underlying uh, the momentum in our earnings and returns over the next year. Profit of Swiss bank UBS tops forecasts at over $2 billion in the first quarter as higher trading volumes boost the bottom line, offsetting the impact from its exposure to Russia. We're going to hear from the CEO, Ralph Harmers, at 8 o'clock CET. Elon Musk has struck a deal worth around $44 billion to buy Twitter and take the 16-year-old social media company private. Twitter's board engaged with the offer after Musk outlined how he planned to finance the deal, having secured over $25 billion in debt financing from Morgan Stanley and other firms. Shareholders will receive $54.20 per share. That is a 38% premium to the company's closing price the day before Musk disclosed that he had built up a stake in Twitter. You can see uh, the stock at 51.70 and uh, of course moves in session. Now the billionaire has pledged to make the platform a haven of free speech while also promising to enhance the product with new features. Musk's pledge has sparked a flurry of speculation over the platform's future, including whether Twitter's ban on former President Donald Trump will be removed, while House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said President Biden will continue to look for ways to hold social media platforms accountable. No matter who owns or runs uh, Twitter, uh, the president has long been concerned about the power of large social media platforms, uh, what they ha- the power they have over our everyday lives, has long argued that tech platforms must be held accountable for the harms they cause. Uh, he's been a strong supporter of fundamental re- reforms to achieve that goal, including reforms to Section 230, enacting antitrust reforms, requiring more transparency. Our concerns are not new. Uh, We've long talked about, and the president has long talked about, his concerns about the power of social media platforms, including Twitter and others, to uh, spread uh, misinformation, disinformation, um, the need uh, for these platforms to be held accountable. For more on Elon Musk's track record on free speech, you can check out CNBC.com. Just a quick note on the share price, you know, 51.70 doesn't reflect 
the 5420 yet that the uh, offer contains. And this is interesting because we've seen so much M&A over the years and quickly the market catches up and you see the hedge funds pile into and uh, the arbitrage traders. And, but so the this hedge funds one, <laughs> piling into or piling out of? Well, typically when you see the, the uh, deal making, you see them try and make a bet on whether there's going to be a higher offer or not. You see all sorts of positioning either to the upside or downside. But in this particular case, I think the market just assumed the deal wouldn't go through. They didn't think that there would, would be this uh, you know, combination in a deal taking place. Good morning to you, by the way. Before we start that Twitter, excellent coverage out over in Paris. I know that you are sleep-deprived but working all hours godsend. So excellent work. Charlotte, brilliant as well. But I thought you, you anchored magnificently. So let me just get that out of the way. Thank Secondly, I, I think this is absolutely fascinating, this Twitter story. I think the market has priced it very well, actually. I think the market thinks there won't be a counter bid. I think the board, one of our producers, I think it was lovely Katie, or one of them said this morning, said, I, I don't understand why, um, why the board turned around so quickly. I'm like, yeah, I do. They were biting his arm off at that price. They were bankers, their advisors, their shareholders were saying, if we're going to get 5420, which sounds like a, a reference, according to some, to something to do with hashish and marijuana, the 420 thing, but that's uh, for another day, that conversation, uh, then bite his arm off. Because if you look at the fundamentals of this company over the last couple of years, you look at the fundamentals of this company going forward, no matter what uh, Mr. Musk does with it, if, if, if he goes ahead with this as well, uh, then it's very hard to see how you can justify a $44 billion price tag on a company. And I've spent most of this morning not looking at all the nonsense about Trump, all the nonsense about what is this? Uh, we're going to be the bedrock of, uh, of a functioning democracy. It sounds like something out of Winston Churchill in the House of Commons in 1940s. Free speech is the bedrock of a flourishing democracy. Absolute gump for that. This is a financial deal which our viewers need to be aware of. Uh, is pushing the limits of the valuation of this company given current projections, current cash flow, current losses, and they are losses. They lost $221 million last year. They lost over a billion the previous year. Uh, they've got a, a five, was it five billion in, in fact, I've got the exact number here. They had five billion uh, in, in uh, revenues last year out of a 200 odd million followers. How are they going to monetize it? Where's the moat around this business? What could Musk do? What about Tesla's shareholders as well? Is he going to be distracted? Can he run these two companies uh, simultaneously? Where's he going to get his financing from? What is this uh, margin uh, on his Tesla shares as well? There are so many questions. So in answer to the, the, the question from our production team and from many, why did the board turn around? Because they were desperate to bite his arm off at one of the most elevated prices for a deal we've ever seen. I'll go with you on the uh, full slate that he has at this point. been running three companies, the Space Ambitions as well. Uh, so I want to come no back to... No doubt about it, he's box office. He's great. He's, right. he's fascinating. For us, he's brilliant. But, but is this good in terms of actual business ethic, uh, 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 rationale? And let's think about the banks on the line too. We talk about the financing that's been secured. One of the points is that he's going to need to service some of that debt. It's debt financing. So how does he pay for it? And, you know, he's pushed back around the advertising model that Twitter has, the $5 billion a year. So if he doesn't want the advertising there, doesn't want to grow the advertising, how does he protect the cash flow in the business without pumping more funds into it down the track? So I think that is a big one, that if you want the business model to work, you're going to have to have some sort of advertising-supported model. It's 90% of uh, the income that Twitter has. You I have a, a very young daughter. I have young daughters as well, but I also have um, uh, a millennial son as well. And are millennials flocking to Twitter? No. 
Are millennials flocking to pay subscriptions on anything? No. So if he puts a subs model on this one as well, are the people where the largest growth in social media is coming from as well? And I appreciate there are other generations uh, around the millennials uh, who are, are equally as important as well. They are not rushing to pay subscriptions. They are not rushing to pay more. And hence, dare I say, as we saw from Netflix uh, and that um, turnaround in subscribers there. And you said something else at the start of the show, which actually I wanted to mention as well. You mentioned, and I think it was your read, you said this 16-year-old company... It ain't brand new. It's been around a very long time to show everyone how it can make so much money from advertising, regardless of uh, GDPR concerns and what Apple is doing or not doing as well, uh, regardless uh, of regulatory concerns. And we heard that, that sound from Jen Psaki as well. It's a 16-year-old company. This ain't brand new. It's it teens, but as I can pick up on some of those political comments too. And don't forget, in the past, there is a well-trodden path of very wealthy business people buying media companies. You've seen it in various different parts of the world and seen as a view on control in some ways over free speech. It's almost the opposite in some ways from what Elon Musk is, is talking about, that if you own the press, you own the media, that you might have a certain mouthpiece to communicate a certain view that you have that could further your business interests. I mean, that has been a genuine concern. But in the past, when this has happened, a lot of the businessmen or business people were buying very big companies that had uh, that were effectively cash cows. The growth slowed over the years, as we know, with the media wars, but they were cash cows. If you look at this particular company, we're talking about a slightly different profile here. I think you would be buying it for growth, that you could still turn it around, that it's in that tech category. Absolutely. But uh, it, it's a very different profile, Absolutely. isn't it? You'll, you'll hear no con uh, discontent from me on that one. And just uh, two final tiny comments. I know Emily's waiting. Sorry, Emily, I'll be with you in two seconds. Uh, uh, one, this is a different environment to pre-COVID. This is a different attitude to growth companies. I'll ask Cathy Wood about the different attitude from investors now. So there's a different attitude to backing growth without sustainable prop uh, profits than there was to two years ago. Plus, and I won't have the final word, I'm going to give it to Neil Campling of Mirabeau. He says, Musk is also wasting a vast sum of dollar capital and intellectual capital on a glorified mass messaging platform that has never been able to reach monetization scale with no discernible moat. There you go, we've done that. HSBC has reported a 27% fall in first quarter profit, which came in at $4.2 billion. Europe's largest lender maintained a positive outlook despite the slowdown in Hong Kong impacting revenues. Emily, you are the most patient woman in Hong Kong at CNBC. Thank you very much indeed for waiting for us. Take it away, my friend. Uh, thanks a lot, Stephen. I was enjoying your conversation, and of course, uh, Karen did a great job over in Paris. Uh, but we are looking to HSBC and the shares coming back online in the afternoon session, reacting to the latest Q1 report card. HSBC has been an underperformer today. The stock is down 2.5%, and this, these are the levels that it was trading ahead of the earnings release as well. Uh, HSBC in Hong Kong last traded at $50.35. It reported a 27% slide in its first quarter pre-tax profit to $4.2 billion dollars. This is better than what was the market was looking for, 3.7 billion. Group CE Noel Quinn saying he is encouraged by the start of the year and that strategy is on track. Revenue was down 4% to $12.5 billion, and the revenue outlook is positive, the bank says, with the bank expecting mid-single-digit percentage growth this year. Net interest margins of 1.26%, up five basis points from a year ago. We got a ch chance to speak to Group CFO Ewan Stevenson, and he says the bank is set to benefit in this rising rate environment. He expects a 50 basis point hike from the Fed. Yeah, look, if interest rates were to move up about 100 basis points, that's worth about $5 billion of additional net interest income to us over the next 12 months. So we're 
very positively geared to a raising bright and bright environment, actually far more than most banks because of the nature of our balance sheet. So we are expecting the Fed to raise rates by 50 basis points. Um, uh, so overall, I think, you know, interest rate rises is going to be a big theme underlying uh, the momentum in our earnings and returns over the next year. Two-thirds of a pre-tax profit comes from Asia. Asian operations contributed $2.8 billion, which was down 25% on year. Hong Kong is the bank's biggest market, and COVID in Q1 was the worst. Uh, it has been in this city since the pandemic started. So what was the impact on the bank and Hong Kong as a financial center? This is what he had to say. Yeah, the lockdown did have a significant impact on our results in the first quarter. Uh, operationally, uh, we had to shut about 50% of our branch network on any given day. Uh, the good news is the branch network is back fully open as of last week. Uh, in particular, I think any of the complex product sales that you would normally see through a branch network, whether that be mortgages, commercial lending, uh, mutual fund sales, were impacted in the quarter. So I do think with the branches reopening, we'll see a progressive rebuilding of uh, business in Hong Kong. Uh, Hong Kong's been through lots of cycles. Uh, we see it strongly recovering uh, over the rest of this year. On the Ukraine war, the bank says that it uh, continues to have devastating consequences both within Ukraine and beyond. On their Russian exposure, the bank has about 200 staff there servicing multinational corporate clients. HSBC Russia is not accepting any new business or customers and is on a declining trend. The bank completed its $2 billion share buyback in April and will commence an additional $1 billion buyback that they announced earlier uh, in February on the back of their full year numbers. And that will start after the upcoming AGM on April the 29th. So we got a week showing for HSBC shares on the back of the report card. The stock is down about two and a half percent. Back to you now. Emily, thank you very much for bringing us the update. A uh, big day for banks today. We're also focusing on UBS, which has beaten forecasts in the first quarter with a 17% jump in net profit of $2.1 billion. Strong trading volumes helped offset the negative impact of the bank's exposure to Russia, which has been further reduced. The Swiss lender reported a CET1 capital ratio of 14.3%. I mean, the bank always interesting. Uh, the very strong trading volume will be fascinating to hear about when we speak to the CEO, Ralph Harmers, at 8 o'clock CET. But of course, there's been a string of events still over at Rival Credit Suisse and just how UBS is capitalising on that will be quite key. Right. A net profit over at Santander has jumped 58% in the first quarter as the Spanish lender was boosted by a strong performance in South America alongside a recovery in Europe. The bank also posted net loan loss provisions of 2.1 billion euros. That is actually slightly below forecasts. Santander confirmed its 2022 outlook despite the threat posed by global inflation. Quick look at Novartis as well. Uh, they are saying they expect sales to grow mid-single digit. Uh, Sandoz sales expected to be brought in line with the prior year. Of course, we're still all trying to work out what's going to happen with Sandoz going forward. What else have they said? They said solid sales and profit growth, strong performance in market brands, support confidence in the mid-term growth outlook. Actually, there's some China figures in here. Let me see if I can re-find them as well because they were actually rather solid and just as i said that i've lost the china figures but they were pretty good uh, here we go no back off. <laughs> brilliant i've managed to lose that uh, first quarter core operating income grew nine percent um with core margin increasing 32.6 
5% as well. Here we go. I found China eventually. I knew if I carried on talking, I'd get it. Emerging growth markets overall grew 12%. Strong China growth. That's what I was looking for, Karen. Uh, 16% higher in constant currency. Yeah, that strong China growth line in contrast to the markets have been digesting China of late, concerned about the lockdowns, the impact on supply chains uh, with ports uh, getting clogged and what that means across the world. And don't forget uh, the inflation issue is key as we talk about central banks and the other big issue, the twin issue here really is monetary policy and we've had markets that have been roiled for a couple of days. We snapped the red ink yesterday for the major markets. Uh, the Dow stopping that two-day losing streak, uh, bouncing seven-tenths of a percent. We ended a three-day losing streak on the Nasdaq and you can see communication services, those big tech stocks well and truly out in front and big fang names also bouncing strongly. I wonder if there was the Musk effect. Uh, don't forget the way he's been viewing and valuing Twitter quite different to how the marketplace has been valuing those high growth areas of the market and just questioning whether we know about the growth profile and have transparency for those bank stocks at this point. Of course, Netflix really challenging the narrative last week. So you can see it was a bounce though for the Nasdaq 1.3% higher. Those bank stocks up more than two and, a, uh, two, two and a quarter percent to the Treasury markets. And let's just take a look at that 10 year yield. We have cooled off a little bit. You can see we're backed away from that 3% mark. We approached a 2.86 at the long end, 2.66 at the short end. A quick look at the dollar trade as a result and uh, across the board at this stage. It was interesting to see that risk off move yesterday. Of note uh, in particular was the euro as we chased the election result in France. We didn't see uh, a lot of strength there, more of a stable trend effectively. But uh, the risk off uh, moves really just masking some of that. And you can see this morning, euro is perched firmer. We've marched up by about a tenth of percent, 107.24. Sterling also gathering the same amount of speed up about a tenth of a percent. A dollar is slightly firmer versus the safe haven Japanese yen, but uh, tabbing off versus the Chinese currency. To those Asian markets, a quick check on how we are traveling. We have some bounces to report. And the exception is Australia that is playing catch up. It was closed yesterday for Anzac Day. And, uh, that market now down, you can see 2%. But the Shanghai market is stronger, outpaced by Hong Kong, 1.6% gain or more than 312 20 odd points at this hour, six tenths almost on the Japanese stock market. And to those US futures, uh, let's see whether we can repeat some of the green that we saw yesterday. It does look like we are setting up for a firmer day. Uh, modestly to the upside at this stage is how we're tilting at this hour. Yeah, solid old rally off the uh, earlier lows. David Pierce is managing director of GPS Capital Markets. David, very nice to see you. Just a quick word on this uh, Twitter situation. If you were a Twitter shareholder, you may well be one. In fact, it'd be good if you could tell us if you are. Um, would you be biting Mr. Musk's arm off so far? Uh, well, to be to be franker at the first, I'm not a Twitter shareholder. And uh, if I was a Twitter shareholder, I would definitely be wanting to take his offer. Uh, I, I, It's amazing how much difference a weekend makes. Uh, on Friday, we had everybody and their dog talking about how they did not want to take Elon Musk's offer for Twitter. And, to, and on Monday this week, everybody was more than anxious to take the money and move forward. And I, and I think some of the big losses we saw in the stock market on Friday put a little bit of fear into people. And people, when they're especially talking about tech stocks, they, they're, they're a lot more worried about where they might be going in the future. And so this offer for Twitter looks really good right now. They didn't really believe in the growth story. I, I've got a sneaky feeling and a company that's lost money significantly over the last couple of years, struggling to get anywhere near its subscriber growth expectations and could well have some uh, interesting figures this Thursday as well. Do you think people are giving up on the old rationale for investing in growth and wanting a little bit more evidence of profitability now? 
I think that there's something to that. And especially when we are looking at a time in our world where we've got we've got wars going on, we've got you know, issues with the, you know, we've had pandemic going on and we've got a kind of a resurgence of COVID going on in China right now where they might be locking down Beijing, which could, uh, you know, really impact what's going on in the world economies. We've seen some slowdowns going on in the UK, for instance. It doesn't look like we're going to get some more interest rate hikes over in the UK. And that has shown in the weakness of those currencies. Um, the Chinese Renminbi and the, and the British pound, the euro, have all been weaker against the US dollar on the back of those things. So I don't think that there's nearly as much bullish sentiment in the marketplace right now as we saw even two weeks ago. David, can I ask you about uh, the inflation story? Because we are sitting back watching this Chinese story, but it feels as though we haven't fully seen the impact of the supply chain hit this time round. It's a, a bit of a COVID repeat story for the world when it comes to those log jams. What does that mean, though, for central banks that are trying to get through some of the pandemic noise, trying to judge what the supply shocks are at this point, but also drive up interest rates? Well, I, I think that there is that there's a lot of fear right now because uh, let's start with the United States. If we if we look at where we are, we are growing dramatically and our inflation is kind of out of control. And it's not just the price of oil. It is everything in the supply chain. Um, my wife, uh, here's a weird antidote. My wife, she makes soap and she buys a lot of oil for soap. Well, a lot of your safflower, sunflower oil and rapeseed oil comes out of Russia and Ukraine. Well, because we can't get that, a lot of people have been demanding palm oil. Well, so Indonesia yesterday banned the export of palm oil because it was getting so expensive for them. It is impacting every aspect of our lives and little things that you don't even think about. And then when you start talking about China and they've got another COVID round going there and they might shut down Beijing and they might stop a lot of the manufacturing that's over there, that is, that is too early to tell right now. But even now, there are companies that were used to getting product out of China in, in five and six weeks, and they're now talking five and six months it, it, to get their product. So everything is behind, everything is delayed, supply chain is still a huge issue, and I don't think that we have solved that. And if we have another round of pandemic, it's gonna exacerbate that. And I'm not sure how we're gonna continue to grow our economies and continue to make things and buy things and how how i don't know that the demand can sustain all of this if we are not producing things and we're not able to ship things around the world and we're seeing a lot of that movement in the currency markets right now and david it's a great example about your wife's business because putting up interest rates doesn't seem to help solve the issues of getting the product back into the company and meeting fulfilling demand at this point so what do we see from the central banks do you think is the market right and pricing in a fairly hawkish path from here or do you think we're going to be derailed because of the growth story well i i think in the united states in particular we're gonna we're definitely going to see uh, a 50-point hike and probably another 50-point hike soon thereafter because we do have such such quick growth going on in in every market really whether it's you know housing or uh, infrastructure everything is going up in price so we're going to see those interest rate hikes but it could really precipitate a, a turnaround in the economy and slow things down so much so that they're gonna they might have to back those off very quickly it is a really volatile situation right now and I don't know that anybody two years ago 
could have imagined what was going to happen with this COVID pandemic. It was it was just not in the cards and nobody would have thought that everybody was going to be home for two years and what that would do to our kids and what it would do to supply chain issues and stuff. Those are the unknowns that I think that we're going through right now. Um, there we've got we got a little bit of stability with Macron. Uh, winning the election over in France. And it seems like that has added some stability to the to the Euro and the European Union. Um, and, but at the same time, we saw, you know, disappointing numbers out of the UK. And so we've, we've seen some weakness in the in the British pound and that helped pull the Euro down with it. There's a lot there, David. Thank you so much indeed for joining us. Uh, Monday evening where you are, Appreciate just it. around about 24 minutes past 11 uh, in wonderful Utah. Thank you very much indeed, David. Thanks a lot. For joining us. David Pierce, Managing Director, GPS Capital Markets. Uh, Utah's Mitt Romney and Mike Lee territory, I think. Right, uh, let us move on. Coming up on the show, Standard Chartered's Bill Winters urges banks and governments to address the climate crisis with the same urgency as the COVID crisis and the geopolitical situation in Ukraine. We'll bring you Jeff's special panel with the Standard Chartered boss, uh, or Stand Chart boss, uh, from City Week next. And for more on Elon Musk's plans for Twitter after his $44 billion buyout, you can check out the Squawk Box podcast. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Beijing has expanded its mass testing COVID program to most of the city after recording a slight uptick in cases. China's capital has reported over 30 new locally transmitted infections in the past 24 hours. That is higher than previous days. This is fears rise over a potential lockdown similar to the one in Shanghai. Meanwhile, China's central bank said it will step up monetary policy support to the real economy, including small companies that are most at risk of potential COVID impact. The PBOC says it will keep liquidity reasonably ample amid the uncertainty. Just taking a look at credits for shares, down a mere 24% year-to-date. Um, the group is facing further pressure from shareholders, this time on its sustainability credentials. Legal and General and Aviva investors have joined an activist push calling on the lender to quicken the pace of its divestment from fossil fuels. The group is now 31 investors strong, with over $5 trillion in assets under management between them. The move comes ahead of a resolution at the shareholder meeting this Friday. Uh, Stand Chart, or Standard Chartered, we seem to be using both. Uh, CEO Bill Winters has told CNBC climate change is an ex existential risk of a scale comparable to COVID and the war in Ukraine. Jeff spoke to the Stand Chart boss at a, as part of a panel at this, uh, the City Week conference in London and asked him if he thinks inflation pressures and rate hikes will hamper progress in the fight against climate change. The world has rallied around a couple of, of major uh, exogenous shocks in a spectacular way. Uh, and I'm thinking about COVID and the, uh, the invasion of Ukraine, uh, where 
either big chunks of the world or, or in maybe even all of the world uh, reacted in ways uh, with, with uh, cooperation, money, research, technology, uh, coordination uh, that was almost unimaginable. Which then begs the question, why have we not dealt with this, this arguably more existential risk uh, that we all face, which is climate change, with a similar sort of ferocity? And we haven't, right? We don't have, we're not throwing trillions of dollars uh, at the climate change problem. Uh, we're not convening uh, heads of state uh, on an almost daily basis to, uh, to plot how we can, or, or central bankers or finance ministers, uh, to plot how we, can, how we can tackle this question. It's a little bit back burner. I mean, what's it going to take to get it front burner? I mean, all of us sitting here, I, I hate to say it, uh, isn't going to do it because uh, we've been doing this sort of thing for a while and it hasn't made that big a difference. But uh, can we rally that spirit that, uh, that allowed us to respond as a global community to COVID in such an effective way, uh, in a way that, that could actually tackle the climate problem? I think so. Uh, so I'm not hopeless, but I think all of your, your scene setting, bleak though it is, uh, is, is quite correct. The stand chart chief also said traditional oil majors will play a crucial part in the energy transition and encourage ongoing investment provided the funds are used appropriately. What's the best way to get from point A to point B while assuring that you're bringing as many of the emitters of the world along with you? Because it does no good to, to put a system in place where people just check out. So, yeah, we can't, we're not going to get there, so, so why bother? I can tell you uh, in, in many of the markets, emerging markets that Senator Trudder serves, if we tell them that, that you know, one, we're about to screw you and you're going to have to pay for it, uh, well, they're going to say, fine, we're not, we're not going to be a part of that system. Uh, and that's, that, that then serves nothing. Rather, we have need to bring them along uh, in, a, in the most constructive way. Uh, oil companies are part of that. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.